You're listening to the weekly Parsha podcast recorded with Hashem's never-ending kindness in Ramat B'Shem Israel 5769 2009. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Bimidbar. In this week's Parsha, so the theme of the Parsha, the main theme I would say, is the concept of the counting of the Jewish people. There are many interesting things that we find in the counting. We need to understand each point, understand what the message of the counting is. To begin with, let's look at exactly what was going on. So God tells Moshe, Rabbeinu tells Moses, he should take Aaron and he should take 12 different leaders from each tribe. And together they should work to count the Jewish people. Now the way that they would count them was each person would donate a chatzis shekel, a half shekel, and that money was donated to the temple. And they would count all of the money and see exactly how much there was. And they would know how many people were in each tribe, how many people were total in the entire Jewish people. Now what's interesting to note is that we also see that there was a separate counting for the tribe of Levi. Levi, who the Torah says were designated for the service of God, so they received their own counting. Before we get to the questions, so it's also interesting, so we find in the Parsha, the Torah tells us that the Levim, the Levites, so they replaced the Bechorim, the firstborns, they were the ones who really had the rights to serve God, to be the ones who performed the service in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary. However, they lost that right when they did the Masai Egel, when they served, they worshipped the golden calf, and therefore was transferred to the Levim, the Levites who stayed strong to God, and they stood up against those who had served the idolatry. So therefore, they were given the Avod of the service of God, and they replaced the firstborns in that service. And the Torah goes through a whole process where the firstborns were actually redeemed with money, and they lost their status. However, the Levim took on that status. Now let's go through each of the different points that we've made so far, and we'll see that there's a tremendous amount of things that we need to understand. The first thing that we see is that the Torah says that there was a counting of the Jewish people. Now, God is commanding Moshe Rabbeinu, is commanding Moses to count the Jewish people. Why does God command him to count the Jewish people? What? God doesn't know exactly how many Jews there are? Of course, God knows exactly how many Jews there are. So, the Mephorshim, the commentaries immediately try to explain this. And Rashi says right at the very beginning, in the first chapter, the first verse, the first Rashi, he says, Because of their love before God, because God loves them so much, God counts them constantly. We're going to come back to this Rashi, but of course the Rashi needs explanation because what does it mean that just because God loves us, therefore He counts us? How does counting show love? We're going to see more about that, but let's go on to a few other questions. Another thing that we see that the Jewish people, the way that they were counted was through the chatzis shekel, the half shekel. Everyone donated the same amount, everyone donated a half shekel. Question is, why was it specifically through this method, through money? Why was that the significant method of counting them? Another thing that we see is that the Levites, the Levim, so they were given a separate count. And as we know, so they were the servants of God, so they were special, they were on a different level, let's say. They were constantly serving Hashem. But why were they counted separately? Every single tribe we know had its own tafi, had its own purpose, had its own role to play in the Jewish people. Why were the Levites singled out when it comes to this counting? The last question I'd like to ask has to do with the connection between the concept of counting the Jewish people and the Levites, the Levites replacing the Bechor and the firstborns. Now, why is it that these two concepts are placed next to each other? What's the significance of that? It's also important to note that how did this pidgin, this transfer of holiness take place? So, if they would have asked me, and thank God they didn't ask me, but if they would have asked me how we should transfer the holiness, so I would say, well, all of the Bechor and the firstborns should jump into a mikvah, and then the, Lev- the Levites, the Levites should jump 
jump into the same mikvah after them, and then the holiness should be transferred from the Bechorim, from the firstborns onto the Levites. But that's not what happened. They took money, and we even do this to this day. I did this for my own son, who's a firstborn, and we transferred the holiness off of him. How did we do it? So we gave money to the Kohen. And that's what happens over here. There was a certain amount of money that was a pigeon, was a redemption, and that money was given to the Levites. Why is it that that's the way that we're going to transfer the holiness from the firstborns onto the Levites? How do we understand this? So now, let's come back to the Rashi, the first Rashi in the Parsha, the first Rashi in the Sefer Bamidbar. And Rashi tells us, besides for just saying that the reason that God was counting them was in order to show His love, He also continues and says as follows, Since God wanted to show His love, so He's constantly counting them. When do we see this? When the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they left Egypt, God counts them. When they sinned with the golden calf, so God again counted them to see how many Jews are left. And then again, Whenever God wants to place His Shechina, His Divine Presence amongst them, He counts them. The first day of Nisan, the Mishkan, the sanctuary was established. Then a month later, on the first day of Iyar, God counted them. And the idea is because the Mishkan, the sanctuary, was the vehicle through which God would place His Divine Presence upon the Jewish people. So as soon as He's going to do that, so He's going to count them. So again, this Rashi begs for an explanation. What does it mean that because God is about to place His Shechina, His divine presence upon the Jewish people, He's about to reveal Himself to the Jewish people, therefore He counts them. And if anything, when it comes to the Egel, the sin of the golden calf, that was the exact opposite. The Jews just lost everything. They just lost the Shechina. They just lost the divine presence that had been upon them. So why is God counting them then? It seems to be a contradiction in Rashi. What's the understanding? So to begin to grasp this idea, I want to tell you that there's actually a continuation here from what we spoke about last week, in a certain sense. Last week we spoke about the concept of connection through the concept of sipur, of communication, of speaking. And as we explained last week, when I say something, when I give over a story, I give over a concept, so I transport you, either I transport you into the story or I transport the concept from my mind into your mind. But the deeper sources tell us that that's not the only means of connection. There's also another means of connection, actually two more, but we're going to discuss the second one. And that is the concept of safar. Just like there's sipur, which is communication, there's safar, which means counting. And somehow counting also has the ability to create a connection. The question is, what does that mean and how does it work? So let's start by thinking about the concept of when do we count? When do we count our money, let's say? Something that's precious to us is our money. When do we count the money? So I'll answer you that the time when we count the money is when we get paid and when we're paying somebody else. Now, when I go and I do a job for somebody, and they pay me the money that they owe me for the work that I've done, so the guy who's paying me, so he counts out the, whatever it is, let's say $100, and he counts out the money, there's 10 tens, let's say, and he does a double count to make sure he counted correctly, and then he gives me the money, I count it again, I count it a second time, and I put it in my wallet, and I go home. Right, so what, I didn't trust him, like I was watching every single second that he was counting the money. What, I didn't believe him that there's really 10 tens there, I had to count it myself also twice, why do we do that? So I think that there's something tremendously deep here. And that is, let's say I do a wedding, I provide a service for somebody, I sing at their wedding. And so after four hours or five hours, so I finish the job, and I come to them and I, and I ask for my paycheck. 
So the next day, so my wife asks me for the money, and I say to her, you know, let me hold this money a little bit longer in my wallet. I just like to have it there. I know the money's going to disappear and pay all the bills in exactly 10 seconds, but still, I'd like to have it in my pocket. I don't, what's the shot? Like, why do I need to have it in my pocket? And the answer is something very powerful. The answer is because the money that you have earned represents the actualization of your potential. Meaning, when you provide a service, so what are you doing? So you're taking the time that you have and you're filling it up. You're actualizing that time. You're taking the potential and bringing it to fruition in a certain way. Now, when you do a certain thing for somebody else, so the way that they represent the fact that you've given them this service is by giving you money. So the money really represents the actualization of your potential. It's the thing that shows that I have spent my time doing something productive, and this is it. This is what I have to show for it. That's why it's so important for a person, after he's made the money, to be able to hold on to it for a few seconds at least before he pays his bills. Now, this bit of psychology actually explains something very deep that we see in the words of our sages. Because on the surface, what I'm about to tell you is very strange. We see that in a number of places, our sages, they refer to a person and they categorize him along with his possessions. Now, that's very odd. Because in spirituality, so as we all know, our possessions are, at best, transitory. All we have them for is the time that we're in this world. A person lives 120 years. Wow, that's amazing. But that, after that, he's dead. And what does he take with him to the grave? Nothing. So it's very strange that our our sages would talk about the concept of a person's possessions and categorize them along with the person himself. Another thing that also is strange is that we see that there are people who are willing to sacrifice their lives to try to save something, some possessions that they have in their house, let's say when their house is on fire. People are crazy. What are they doing? Why are they risking their life to save some possession? And the answer is to both of these questions, exactly what we just said, because the possessions that a person has, the money that a person has made, it represents to the person the actualization of his potential. Here I have, this is what I've earned. This is what I've done with my time. I've created this money. I've created this mansion, these cars, this unbelievable wealth. It's all the investment that I placed, the potential that I've actualized in my life. Here it is. It's represented by all of these physical assets. Now, that's a tremendous allure. It's very easy to get sucked in, to start to think that that's the purpose of life, to make more and more money, because the money represents all that we have accomplished. And it's essential. God programmed us that we need to feel accomplished. We need to see the fruits of our labors. We need to see what we have produced with the time that we've been in this world. So because the money that we have, the possessions that we have, represent what we've done with our life, that's why a person will jump. He'll run to the fire to try to save his possessions. Because what's he really saving? He's really saving all he's done with his life until now. Because as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to see all you've accomplished and try to save that. And kind of lose focus on what the potential is that's in store for the future. So now, when we look at the concept of counting, when we look at the idea of counting money, let's say, so a person counts his money, he's connecting himself. He's realizing all the things that he's accomplished. But what happens with that money, it's interesting, at the next step, it's like, can you imagine fruits? So what's a fruit? So a fruit is something that's very delicious to eat. But inside of the fruit, so you have a, a pit, or you have a seed. You take the seed, you put it in the ground, and you water that seed, and it starts to grow, and you invest a lot of time 
and a lot of effort and you have all this potential and it's growing and it's actualizing and again, what gets produced? The fruits again. You take that fruit and there's a cycle here. Every time you get the fruit, it's always the potential to seed for the next level. It's the same thing with money. When you get the money, so it's the potential, it's the seed for the next level because you take that money, what do you do? So you spend it on your needs. You spend it to pay for your necessities in order to continue in your lifetime and you reinvest that which you have actualized, the potential you brought out. You take that and you reinvest it into actualizing more potential. But the thing that encourages him to continue on this cycle is the fact that he has something tangible. He has the money in his hand. Even if it's in his wallet for a few minutes, he sees that he's actualized potential. He's done something with his life. He spent an evening singing for a chassan and kala, for a bride and groom, making them happy. This is contained in the money. And it's what gives him the impetus to continue on this path of actualization of potential. Now what's interesting is that if let's say someone would heaven forbid come home and robbers had ransacked his house and stolen 90% of everything that he owned. So what does he do? So he goes through whatever's left and he looks at what's left and he takes stock of whatever's left. He looks, okay, they didn't get this money. They didn't find this vault. They didn't find this hidden stash of cash. Then he goes and he starts over and he starts to make his money back. But why did he have to count his money to see what was left? Why did he just give up, forget about it? There's nothing there. The answer is that by counting what's left, so it brings back to him, it brings home to him the message that again, I need to start over. I need to actualize potential. Look, there is something left from what I've done before. I'm going to try again. I'm going to start over. Now let's look back at Rashi. What did Rashi tell us? When does God count the Jewish people? When he wants to be mashra his shechina, when he wants to bring down his divine presence upon the Jewish people. What does that mean? That means when God wants to connect to the Jewish people, he counts them. When he wants to strengthen his relationship with them, he counts them. He's showing that every single Jew is essential. Every single Jew is important to me. No one Jew on his own is going to create Kalal Yisrael. It's going to be the entire Jewish people. Only all of them together, joined together as a unit, as a whole. That's when I have the entire Jewish people and I'm going to connect to them. But every single Jew as an individual is also precious as part of that whole. And he looks down, he counts them, and he says, this one's precious, this one's precious. Look what this one went through. Look at all the difficulties he's had in his life. Look at all the spiritual growth this person has undergone. We're going to take stock of all that we've accomplished until now. And now we're going to build a beautiful future. We're going to go higher, we're going to go farther. Now that happens when the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim, and they're on this tremendous high. God has just invested a tremendous amount into the Jewish people. There was a realization of potential. There was this tremendous revelation that occurred, where God brought down the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. The entire Jewish people knew that they were special to God. God splits the sea in front of the Jewish people, brings them through. And after that, He counts them. Because at that point, when there's an actualization of potential, there's a recognition of the fact that now we're going to count, we're going to see what we've got, and we're going to keep building, we're going to keep going. That's something that happens over here as well. When God commands Moshe Rabbeinu to bring the Mishkan, to bring the sanctuary, put it up. And he's about to place his Shekhinah, his divine presence upon the Jewish people. There's a counting that occurs there. They've reached a certain level. There's an actualization of potential. The Mishkan has been completely built. So there's a recognition of that actualization. And there's a counting, recognizing that. And then God creates that relationship anew. Starts that relationship building that relationship. Now, it's not a coincidence that when God commands the Jewish people to be counted, how does He say to count them? With money. Each and every person gives a half shekel. Each and every person donates something to the temple. He makes an investment. He actualizes his potential. He takes something which represents the actualization that he's done until now, the money. And he gives it to the temple. He donates it towards his relationship with God. 
there's a recognition that the entire purpose of this actualization of potential, the entire focus that we need to have in our lives is to completely dedicate ourselves to a relationship with Hashem. We take the money that we have. It's dedicated to, toward our Avodah Hashem, the service of God. We give it to the temple. As God is showing how precious each and every one of us are, we show that we are dedicating ourselves to that relationship as well. This also explains why when the transfer of the holiness of the Bechorim, of the firstborns, occurred, how did it occur? It occurred through money. Because the concept of the firstborn is the one who's serving Hashem, who's serving God. So he's the one who's dedicating himself to a relationship to God, to helping others have a relationship with God. So when he gives over that potential or that actualization of potential, what does he do? He takes the money and he gives it to those who are now going to serve God. He's taking that money. He's giving it over to God, so to speak. He's showing that the actualization of potential, the purpose of life, is to dedicate oneself to spirituality. And he's giving that money over at the same time, which represents the Avodah Hashem, the service of God. He's giving that to the Levi, thus showing that there's a transfer of power from the Bechorim, from the firstborns to the Levites. This also explains why there was a separate counting for the Levites. Because the Levites, they were in a completely different category from the rest of the Jewish people. Yes, of course, the entire Jewish people has to dedicate themselves entirely to spirituality. But the Levites, they were the ones who would stand as the facilitators of Kedusha, of holiness. They were the ones who were going to bring it to the Jewish people. They were the ones who would be directly involved in the Avodah HaKodesh, inside of the Mishkan, inside of the sanctuary, doing that holy work. They represented a different level of Kedusha, of holiness, of potential being actualized. And that's why they were counted separately. Now, I think there's a tremendous lesson, of course, to learn from all of these ideas. Of course, we have to actualize our potential, focus ourselves on service of God. And there's another important thing that we see here, and that is that in order for us to be able to actualize our potential, in order for us to be able to build on all of the wonderful spiritual achievements that we have achieved until this very day, we need to recognize them for ourselves. We need to place them in front of ourselves. We need to surround ourselves with people who also are concerned with spiritual achievement. When we're around people who everyone thinks that the entire point of life is to make money, so then of course we're going to believe the same thing. But when we surround ourselves with a tremendous amount of encouragement, of spiritual support, it helps us to recognize what we have indeed accomplished. Look at we, what we've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Look at how close to God we've become. Of course, He's infinite, and there's always greater levels of spiritual closeness that we can achieve. But look how much we've done. Look how many words of Torah we've learned. Look how many pages of Gemara, or how many lines of the Torah we've learned, we've read. Look at our relationship with God, how it has improved. When we focus on that, when that becomes something that's tangible to us, it creates the impetus for us to be able to continue on that road, to be able to continue to strive to greater heights, to be able to continue to grow higher and higher, go, grow closer and closer to Hashem. May Hashem help us all realize the greatness of His service, the greatness of ruchness of spirituality, and help us to continually grow in our appreciation for what's really important. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Shabbos.